At any rate, we're going to start in Luke chapter 12. And I'm going to intend to look at the first 12 verses. Now, this is about a five-hour trek. <laughs> so I'm either going to have to talk really, really fast, or we'll pick a day during the week where we can delve into these things to the depth they, they really should be. Um, if you're familiar with Venn diagrams uh, from your uh, high school mathematics, uh, just think of a bunch of circles, in this case probably five of them, all of them overlap, some to a greater degree than others, and uh, all of these uh, overlappings are in this passage, and the passage is uh, focused on uh, the idea of hypocrisy, as we will see, and uh, what that means. Now, before I get into it, understand that I am not talking about something that can destroy your faith. Nothing can do that. Uh, when, when Luke begins this chapter and he's talking about hypocrisy here, in, in terms of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were hypocrites and they had no faith. Uh, they had no faith to destroy. And it was, uh, hypocrisy was a large element in that. If you're a Christian, you can also be a hypocrite. That does not mean you are no longer a Christian, but it can and usually does destroy your effectiveness as a Christian, uh, cause you to limp through your Christian life rather than being successful, uh, strident, open, standing, courageous for the Lord. So that's, that's what is behind all of this. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we spent two weeks on a chapter, the conclusion of chapter 11, going through seven woes that Jesus was pronouncing against the Pharisees. One of the Pharisees had invited him to dinner and as he uh, reclined at their table, he, he said, uh, let me tell you a few of your problems. And he went through seven, seven of them. <clears throat> and today what we're going to find is he's going to sum up all of those seven under the rubric of the word hypocrisy. Um, let me read the first three verses of chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. Uh, so clearly one of the aspects, one of the uh, tap roots of hypocrisy is, is something hidden, something that's covered up, all of which will one day be revealed. I don't know about you, but those verses, I remember uh, in my younger days, and maybe even more so in my uh, older days, uh, those, those things, uh, I hate to think, I hate to think that the words I've spoken, the thoughts I've had, uh, the things I've done, all of those will be exposed. And uh, that's, that's one of the circles, by the way, that would be wonderful to investigate. Uh, but at any rate, that, that is going to happen, that the nature of, uh, of hypocrisy. We all, as sinful people, uh, we tend to cover things up, pretend uh, that they uh, are different from what they really are, and indeed uh, 
pretending to be something that we are not is what we all assume is the meaning of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is somebody who goes out and, and uh, pretends. Uh, they play a role, they engage in, in uh, conscious insincerity. All of that is true, but that's not what Jesus is speaking to here in this passage. The Pharisees were not people who were pretending. The Pharisees were absolutely crystal clear with complete confidence in who they were and what they were doing and that what they were doing and who they were uh, was a perfect scenario and a wonderful thing. These are the leaders of Israel. So we're going to look at a little different aspect of hypocrisy, and that is being pleased with yourself for all the wrong reasons. Uh, the Pharisees, again, were not those who pretended uh, to be what they weren't. They, in fact, were very, very pleased with what they were, and that's a terrible aspect uh, that can send a person to hell. Again, I'm not saying as a Christian that if you are not everything completely honest, because frankly, there isn't an honest person in this room. Uh, there are, every one of us is a sinner. And the essence of sin is to deny the truth. That's the whole point of Romans 1, the second half of Romans 1, very, very important chapter in scripture, beginning in the 18th verse there. Those who are unrighteous are those who suppress the truth. The truth is in every human being. I don't care where you are, where you're born, what you have been uh, subject to, whether you've ever been in a church or not. Every human being is created by God and therefore is aware of truth. And the only way you can avoid it is to suppress it and to try to, uh, to be something uh, that you do not think is real. Uh, so the Pharisees uh, are very pleased with all of this. Uh, the illustration uh, par excellence is in uh, the 18th chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 9. I'll, I'll read this. You're very familiar with it. Uh, 18 of Luke, verse 9, says this. That's uh, a little vignette in this chapter. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That would be a, a good definition of a Pharisee. Unfortunately, it's also a good definition of many Christians. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is um, a perfect passage of, of what uh, we're getting at here. There will be no asking for forgiveness from a person like a Pharisee, um, a person who thinks uh, they've they got everything in, in control. That there's no reason. Why would I ask forgiveness when, when there's nothing wrong with me? I'm perfectly fine. Thank you very much. So Jesus comes to his disciples first. You notice that in this first verse of chapter 12. 
He's coming first to his disciples. Again, we're in a period of time where Jesus has these 12 men and he's training them because he knows what's about to happen to him. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to a cross and die and leave these men behind. And they've got to be ready to pick up the torch and carry it forward. Frankly, there is no difference whatsoever with every one of us in this room. Every one of us is called upon to pick up that same gospel torch and carry it forward in the world we live in. So he's coming to his disciples first and he's got to secure them against a very important spiritual danger and that is this hypocrisy. Among other things, the reason he has to is the verses two and three, because everything, our sins, our reality before a holy God are going to be exposed. Here's how the book of Ecclesiastes concludes, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter. You remember Ecclesiastes is that book, every, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What, what's the point? Here's how he concludes uh, the book. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans chapter two, verse six, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, the call that we encounter here in this 12th chapter as we look at the topic of hypocrisy is to know your heart be honest with yourself, know your heart, and go to God with that heart. We're going to see some, some wonderful ideas about that. I'm going to take a bit of an excursus here. Uh, how can we be Pharisees and not know it? Is that possible? Well, again, you can't be a Christian and a non-Christian. So again, I am not saying that, uh, that this is something if you fall into the sin of hypocrisy, then you've lost your Christianity. Nothing can do that. Nothing can take away. You will never lose your Christianity. Uh, but there are hidden fault lines here that we need to know about. How would this come about? How could it possibly happen in the life of a Christian? Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He knows their hearts and he's saying, as well as I know your heart and I know it fully, I've created it. Nonetheless, watch out for this, Christian. Number one, by a lack of honesty in our own hearts. I just alluded to that. Always shielding, always denying, always hiding our hearts from ourselves, especially engaging in what um, usually are, are termed besetting sin, sin patterns that are so unique and common to me that I have trouble with them for long periods of time, perhaps a lifetime. I'm struggling with uh, these kinds of, of things. The heart is the central issue with this notion of, of hypocrisy. Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are, um, we need to be very, very uh, careful with them. How do you do this? How, how do you take your own heart and, and, wrench it clear of everything that's in it to examine it over and over and over. This is not something you do once or twice. This is something that needs to be a pattern in your life. Well, here's a good solution from the 139th Psalm, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me 
and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Those are two verses that every Christian ought to have front and center every single day of our lives. Again, that's the 139th Psalm, verses 23 and 24. Search me, try me, know my thoughts. I'm not hiding from you, God. I'm not pretending. I'm not trying to be something that I am not. Uh, the 459th hymn in the Trinity Psalter, familiar hymn, my hope is built on nothing less. You hopefully are very, very uh, familiar with these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus's name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That, uh, again, this, this goes uh, all the way through. What happens when bad things enter your life? Second verse, when darkness veils his lovely face, often because of our sinfulness, I rest on his unchanging grace. Jesus's grace does not change. When I am lost in my sin, Jesus's grace remains constant. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within that veil. Word is the veil, but the veil of Christ and his grace. Third verse, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And finally, where does it end? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. How can I ever achieve that? By putting all of myself into my savior and nothing into who I am and what successes I may think, uh, usually erroneously, that, uh, that I may have. Here is a, an example of someone, a murderer. I'm going to read what this murderer states about his own hypocrisy and his conclusion from it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. This is the apostle Paul, who in a previous life, as a man named Saul, was the person holding the cloaks while his friends stoned to death, caved the skull in of a man named Stephen. This man is now an apostle and is writing almost half of the New Testament. And he comes to this conclusion, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7 ends with this verse, Romans 8. This is one of the worst chapter divisions in all of scripture. Paul didn't put these chapter divisions in. So I'm gonna read the last of seven and the first verse of, of chapter eight. Thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What I want you to see from that is the struggle. The struggle that, uh, that this man Paul goes through, uh, the struggle that we all should go through, but what he is doing with his struggle is he's taking it before the Lord in complete honesty and integrity saying, search me, know my heart, know my way, wring it dry of this sinfulness. Even though I do things that I know I shouldn't do and continue to do that, my focus remains on Jesus. My salvation is in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And therefore there is now no condemnation in the midst of my sin. I can say there is no condemnation before the Lord because of my belief in Jesus Christ. So the first thing uh, that we need to be aware of is a lack of honesty in our own hearts about who we are. Paul didn't suffer from that. Secondly, by a lack of, of clear thinking. There are a lot of folks who say, of course, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I prayed that prayer. I was in that meeting when somebody said, if you just pray this prayer, you'll be a Christian. Or I signed on the dotted line. I've been in meetings. I'm sure you all have. Where people uh, at the end of it with, with a bunch of uh, what they assume to be unbelievers will pass out a little, little note. And uh, they'll say, say these words and then sign your name. And if you sign your name, you're a Christian. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Um, but some people who go through that experience will say, okay, I, what can be wrong with me? I must be all right. I, I prayed the prayer. I signed my name. An example of, of the problem with this is if you take a person like that and you say, have you murdered anybody? They say, of course not. But then if you take them to Matthew 5 and you read to them from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, well, but have you ever been angry? Were you angry driving to church today? Uh, when somebody was uh, driving in the left lane, I've got to have a bumper sticker made. <laughs> uh, so much of my sin uh, occurs on the highway. To but um, at any rate, uh, in other words, a simplistic person. I've mentioned before, Bobby and I took, uh, had the privilege of taking part in the Billy Graham crusade when, uh, when he came to Philadelphia one time. Then he went several times there, had big crusades there. And, and we were counselors. They, you have various people. We were down on the football field when, when he gives the call and you see on TV, you see them all streaming down to the field. And I talked with a man and uh, he, he said, I, I I want to be a Christian. I said, that's, that's great. Um, let's talk about that. I'm being the, the stuffy old reform type. I'm saying, now, now what you want to do now is get to a good church, a Bible-believing, teaching church. If you are sincerely wanting to be a Christian, that is the best news you could possibly, best choice to make. But you need to understand how susceptible you are now. You need to start growing in the Lord. And the sincerity of your profession tonight in this football arena will be made known to you over time. Uh, you will be known by your fruit. And uh, within a couple of weeks, he called me, cursed me and all this kind of stuff. He said, I'm, I'm still sick. I haven't gotten a bunch of money. And I thought I was supposed to get money when I became a Christian. So you can get all kinds of these surface level introductions to Christianity that will, that will either turn you into a hypocrite or because you have been a hypocrite. Uh, exacerbate the situation. Another way we can do it is by lack of application of what uh, of what we know to be true 
from the scriptures. This is where the board behind me comes in. I was, was uh, moved by a sermon, as I always am, uh, from a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. You're probably all familiar with him, an English uh, preacher, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. Uh, he, he says there are three types of modern hypocrites, and I've got them listed, intellectual hypocrites. Uh, these are people who are fascinated by scripture, fascinated by the truth of theology as another subject they may be like physics, they may be like uh, philosophy, they may be like uh, something else. And here along comes theology that is so fascinating because so much of world history, indeed I would suggest all of world history, is wrapped around it in one way or another. So they really get into doctrine. They couldn't care less about application. It has nothing to do with their hearts. It stays all in their head, rattling around. They're fascinated by it. They become intellectual hypocrites. They never think about God and they never apply what they have understood to be theological truth to their own hearts. You can go in the other direction, the emotional hypocrite. The emotional hypocrite is the one who loves feelings and emotions and remembers that time, that event, when they felt a warm glow or something of that nature. Uh, and that's all they want to know. They don't care. If you start to talk to them about doctrine, they don't want to hear it. Don't confuse me with truth. Don't confuse me with all those facts. I know who I am. I had that warm glow. I've even seen Jesus in my dreams. I've done this. I've done that. It, it's a person who is focused completely. Now, there's nothing wrong with being emotionally attached to Jesus. There is nothing wrong with being a person who loves doctrine. I wish everybody on the planet loved to delve into scripture and doctrine and theological truth. But the problem with this emotional person is that they don't want to grow. They don't want to know anything else. And again, when I'm saying these things, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian. A lot of people like this are Christians, but they're going to remain baby Christians their entire lives. Uh, Paul, Peter, they all talk about this. I, I want to come back and see that you're ready to eat meat now. I quit going first to the dessert table. <laughs> a recent experience of that, a wonderful experience within the last 24 hours. <laughs> um, so the third type that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones identifies, at least, is he calls the practical hypocrite. That's the person who, and I see a lot of these today. Uh, I'm a good person. I serve, I, I'm in the uh, Rotary Club, and I, I do a lot of uh, wonderful events for the city of, of Greenville or wherever it may be. Uh, I'm really into philanthropy, and I, I love um, my stewardship giving is, is fine. Don't confuse me. I don't, I don't like emotion. I don't want to get around emotional people and certainly don't give me any factoids about Christianity. I know who I am. I'm considered a good man in the community, a practical hypocrite who doesn't want to know either doctrine and disdains emotion. Got to move on. Verses four and five. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Uh, what's he talking about? He's talking about the fear of man. Don't, don't fear man. Now, now we are in a, in a point of history in our own culture here where things I think, uh, who knows, uh, I'd love to think that the Lord is going to send a great revival to America. Uh, but America has stood and shook its fists in God's face for a long time now. 
uh, all the little children that the Lord would love to have come to him, we send them to him by murdering them in the womb. Uh, there are so many grievous errors that this culture has committed that in scripture always leads to the death of that culture. If that were to happen in this culture, then the Christians in America are going to have to stand and not fear what man can do. Uh, these are strong and very difficult words. So how strong is your faith? Consider some examples. These very disciples, these 12 men, one of them is going to be, of course, a renegade, is not a believer, he's going to kill himself. Um, but the other 11, according to tradition, at least, very strong tradition, some of it biblical uh, tradition, all 11 of them are going to die a martyr's death because they're not going to fear man. They're going to stand and be willing to die for their faith. There were many, many of those in ancient church history uh, that we're familiar with. You remember Martin Luther, uh, who comes before the powers of the world at that point, before the Roman authority, as a, as a uh, priest in his own right. And he says, here I stand, meaning I'm standing on scripture. I'm standing on Jesus Christ, not the tradition of the church and I can do no other. You can do with me what you wish. You can't do anything but kill me. I'm worried about God and I am seeing God, faithful to God, take your best shot. That's what is meant by those uh, verses four and five. Uh, John Knox, John Knox, fascinating man, the father of Presbyterianism, by the way, Scottish man who's thrown into a prison galley. Uh, he's slaving away uh, with his oar there. He escapes the galley, gets to the continent of England, finds his way to Geneva and to some guy named John Calvin who seemed to know a lot about the Bible. He becomes uh, a disciple of Calvin, goes back to Scotland and starts what we call Presbyterianism. Here's what was said about Knox at his epitaph. Uh, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Wouldn't it be wonderful uh, to have that said about ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a very uh, committed Christian pastor in Germany in the 1930s, as, as uh, Nazism starts to take hold, he sees what's happening clearly. He's over in America at the time things really begin to get hot and all of his friends back in Germany say, please stay in America. It's gonna be dangerous for you if you get back. Well, he doesn't pay any attention. They go straight back to Germany and he stands on the Lord and on scripture until uh, he is put to death almost uh, at the very end, uh, end of, of the Second World War. Um, if you want to read <clears throat> about, uh, I'm going to run out of time if I keep reading these things, but they're two. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 32. That, the so-called roll call of faith. You, you are familiar with this chapter. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, first verse of 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So verse five, talking about fear only God. Why? Because he alone has the power to do something uh, and will do something. Uh, to each one of us after death. But what do we see in the Western culture in which we live? We see a total disintegration of biblical truth. Everything was fine for about 1700 years or so until the enlightenment, so-called, one of the greatest misnomers in human history. Uh, the enlightenment shows up and says, oh, come on, you don't need to worry about, uh, about God. And, and you start getting uh, things uh, but God is, is he's user friendly. Uh, for those first 1700 years or so, it was not the case. Everyone was worried about both heaven and hell. Death visited families often. The times were most uncertain. Everybody virtually believed in a heaven and a hell, and certainly in a God, if not the God. Today, we have fallen far, far from that. We believe in science. We're embracing AI. Another well-named misnomer, artificial intelligence. Emphasize the artificial. And I would go so far as to say emphasize uh, what? Well, another story for another day. Um, in comes deism, in comes skepticism, in comes rationalism, in comes liberalism, in comes unbelief. And that is the blanket that covers our culture now. What used to be sin is now sort of a lack of self-esteem. You ought to feel better about yourself. Don't worry that you did those things. That's no big deal. Uh, it's, it's just who you are. And it's, it's who you are because of that other person. Either you were born to the wrong side of the tracks or you had this uh, parents who did or didn't do that or the other or something, some, some problem outside of yourself is causing you to act this way. Excuse making, in other words. There's no fear of God whatsoever. If he exists, he loves everybody. When you see people from unbelieving scenarios die these days, well, he's up there with the guy or he, he's up there. He, he's made it. He's a, they, don't, they, they have no clue except to use God for what they hope to be the case. Preaching, teaching, biblical doctrine, don't want to hear any of that. Just give us some group therapy so that we all feel good about ourselves or a self-help book here and there. Everything um, is rooted almost entirely in this world and the temporal nature of life is given no consideration whatsoever. Interesting, in 1741, the most famous sermon ever preached in America centers in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards, if you've ever read that sermon, you know what he compares life with uh, and God's vengeance against unbelief. Edwards in this sermon compares uh, our lives to great waters dammed up. Uh, we're sitting there walking uh, casually at the base of the levee or the dam and there's a, there's a whole lake ahead of us and over our heads and the water is beginning to seep through cracks and we're completely oblivious to it. 
I thought that in 1980, 1980 in May of 1980, I was in a, a conference, a uh, Royal Crown Cola conference, best soft drink ever created, by the way. <laughs> I had the privilege of working for them. They were a bunch of uh, wonderful Christian people. I love that. that um, oh. I was in Portland, Oregon at a uh, production conference. I was teaching uh, the best way to make the best drink on the planet. Uh, my dentist was deliriously happy. He's <laughs> funding that. Keep pushing that, Bob. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, we took off. I had, had another conference in Louisville, Kentucky, starting the next day. So we, we were on a plane. We took off from Portland to go to Atlanta and get up to Louisville. There was a little mountain about 40 miles from Portland called Mount St. Helens. And it was in the news for about eight months because a big lava dome built. And the, everybody was conjecturing, well, <coughs> wonder if the lava dome's ever gonna burst. Well, because it was only 40 miles from Portland, the pilot, it was the United plane, I always wondered if he got fired for this, but he, we're only 500 feet over the mountain He said, okay, everybody left of the plane, get your cameras out. He slowly <laughs> circled out, and everybody on the right of the plane, we come back and slowly. By the time we land in Atlanta, we're walking through the terminal, and you know, they had the TVs and those little gates. Everybody's crammed into the, and we think, well, somebody must have been assassinated or something. Well, it, was, it had blown <laughs> between the time we, we took off. <laughs> the Lord graciously didn't send me into this traffic <laughs> with all the occupants of that airliner. But uh, my point is, I think of that image often about the country we live in right now. Everything's going up, 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 bigger, bigger, more, more, more. And it can't keep going. It's going to blow. What it's going to look like, how it blows, when it blows, I have no clue, but it cannot keep going like it is. That's what Edwards is stressing in this sermon. He also compares it to a bowman straining his arrow is aimed right at your heart. He's going to let it go at some point. Or a spider on a web that dangles over a fire. Grapes waiting in a wine press for somebody to stomp them flat. Now we don't, if you preach a sermon like that today, most churches... You will, you will have your marching order as a pastor very quickly. Um, uh, I've got one more passage. Oh my goodness. Isaiah 63, three says, uh, this is God talking. I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Now, those of you, those, I know none of you do, but the folks uh, who think God is just this little God of love, who's uh, not the case. Uh, but that is foreign to where we are today. Now, my point today is not to send you in, in fearful uh, self-assessment, although that's not a bad place to be, as long as you take it up. You remember the words to that hymn, 459, if you uh, want to read it again. Uh, my point is, uh, is something very different. Fear not, Christian. Stand firm, speak out for Christ. This is the rest of this passage, verse 6 to 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, or not one of them is forgotten from before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. 
And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Remember the context here again. Jesus is, is with these 12 and he's getting them ready because he knows that there will be times in all of their lives when people will drag them before the authorities. And they, what did they do when that happened? They spoke. You remember Peter and John uh, before the judges. Uh, we can't, similar to Luther, we can't do anything but speak for Jesus. They said, we'll let you go if you quit speaking about Jesus. They said, that's, sorry, that's the one thing that we will never do. Uh, so what is the message for the Christian? Again, I'm not saying that Jesus is, is concerned that we be honest. That's what the topic of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy, the Pharisee, the Pharisee was, was oblivious, completely convinced himself totally that he was the man of God. He was the one that was doing it right. He was the one because of the things he did. I look, I'm tithing everything. I'm saying the right things. I know the scriptures backwards and forwards. I've even added to them much of the law. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly why you're going to burn in hell, Pharisee. So to the Christian and all of these tendencies we have to be dishonest with our own hearts, to try to excuse our own sinfulness, don't worry about anything but the truth of the grace of God. You've got God the Father who loves you. You've got God the Son who died for you and is now your priest your prophet, your king, interceding for you with the Father in heaven. You've got the Holy Spirit inside you who is teaching you, leading you, chastising you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. Don't do those things to try to put a blanket over what he is talking to you about. Just come clean with him. Let God know your heart and wrench it fully. We are all in God's hands as a believer. Stand and be strong in the Lord. I'll conclude with familiar, familiar words. Christian, where do you stand today? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, there, there's so much 
to consider here. But we do pray that having heard the word of truth and having your spirit open our hearts and be giving us a new heart, having you effectually call us, having you regenerate us, having you give us the faith to believe, a penitent faith, a repentant faith, adopting us as your children and walking with us in moments by moment to sanctify us, justifying us when we were not worthy of being justified, causing us to persevere and finally bringing us into your glory. Father, we thank you, even though we are prone to conceal our own sins, to try to hide. Father, help us to be completely open. Help us to realize that we are wretched men and women before you because of our sin. But thanks be to God who has sent us Jesus Christ and in him we are more than conquerors and nothing, not death and nothing in this life are we to fear. It is well with my soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.